0: Can you all hear us? Is this like a good level?
1: Yeah, yeah. What about you? Thank good? you. Okay. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. Hi. I feel like I should stand up for this whole thing. It's a I'm going to sit can the, do and then I'll stand right. a little bit. I'll deal. follow your lead. <laughs> yeah, that's it. OK. okay. <laughs>
0: um, thank you so much for coming. I, uh, I'm really excited tonight about having Josh. Uh, I remember there was like this chef that sent a few dinners here named Rab uh, Brownell, who's worked with, um, oh, I love how the names just escape me. But they're really, oh, the really famous cheese people that are in England that make incredible cheese. Oh, this is a great way to start. No, well, I think, yeah, Neil's Yard. Neil's Yard. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's done a few dinners here, and he, like, came in a few months ago and was, like, do you know? Do you know about this man? And I was like, No, I don't. I don't know anything. I, tell me. Shame um, on you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> truly, truly. And then I, I don't freak out so much, but I kind of freaked out um, when I started to see these incredible, like, exploded view images of um, this fish, and I was like, This feels incredibly um, logical to me. Um, but I, I, I was supposed to introduce you first. No, that's cool. Okay. <laughs> I'll introduce Someone you first. Someone assumed. I'll, I totally just went right into it. And it's also the proper ones on my phone. But of course, we'll say you're from Australia. Yeah. You've you've won many awards. You have a restaurant, uh, St. Peter,
1: yes. uh, around Sydney, or yep. in Sydney. Paddington. Paddington. In the <coughs> east of Sydney, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and I will, I'll do a little segue, or I'll start to talk about. So did you know that Archistratus, uh is named after a person named Archistratus. Okay. And he wrote a, a cookbook called The Life of Luxury in 350 BC. Wow. And it's all about fish. The whole cool. book is about fish cookery. And I love the book so much. Did he
1: wash his fish?
0: <laughs> I think. He, I think there's something about that okay. in there. I don't. I don't know if he. If he did your technique or not. <laughs> I don't know, we'll talk, we'll That's, get to that, we'll, we'll okay, wait, <laughs> hold on, um, so yeah, so the whole book is about is about fish cookery, and he basically makes all these incredible statements that are like, you know, you should go to this town for this particular fish, and if, you know, you don't get it from this town because it's total shit, and like, wow. you know, if they won't sell it to you, you should just steal it and face the consequences, <laughs> and, you know, and I really love that kind of voice of uh, the, the sort of uh, a very powerful. confident, powerful voice. Um, so that, so when I read the line in your book, I came prepared because I'm nervous. Um, <laughs> yeah. That we don't know what good fish, fish taste like. I was sort of reminded of Archistratus That I just felt like you had a lot of confidence and conviction in, and knowledge about what you were saying and have kind of like walked can you know, have walked the walk and have really um been able to spend hundreds of hours yeah with fish and no, I mean I can say something. Like,
1: like to that. just touch on that, like I mean there's a few sentences in there that I felt fairly aggressive writing <laughs> and I'm not that guy, but like um I wrote it anyway. <laughs> and I just you know, things like if if this book appeals to you know, I, I can't even remember what I wrote, but it was something about if this book appeals to 45% of you and the rest right. of the other 55, you can throw it in the bin and get rid of it. Um, because I suppose, I don't know, I, I have worked for some wonderful people um, over the years, and one was Stephen Hodges at Fish Face. And Stephen basically had this tiny little restaurant, the same size that I have now, which is 34 seats and he institutionalized this restaurant like everybody just went there for their fish whether it was on a sunday or a friday or you know everybody all these families had a day where they went there and i was very fortunate that i got to be you know a chef in that kitchen who was like one of four chefs that he had um at, at that time and i was 19 when i took that job and by default and a long funny story i by default came like the head chef, like the second chef at 19. And so I was very, um, you know, to hold that, I don't know, that to hold that up was quite challenging um, because the menu changed every single day and we were getting fish in like all the time. And the processing involved in all that was very laborious. And I mean, Seaton was the one who instilled in me that we shouldn't wash fish. And, you know, we can talk more about that. But, um, you know, to have a fridge that was, had copper wrapped on the back of the wall in, in the cool room, so the copper kept the room cold like an old-fashioned fridge would, um, but it didn't have a fan. And it, <coughs> it had, like, closing doors on that specific room, so it was its own little chamber just for fish. Um, big drawers that you kind of slid in and out, and they weren't perforated, but you would just lay the fish down once it was scaled and gutted and wiped, and then you popped it in, and then the top would kind of go, like, it would get a tack on it, kind of like the way meat does, mm-hmm. and it like, set almost, and then we would turn the fish at the end of the night, and that tack side would go to the moist side, and that rotation, you know, may last for up to seven to eight days. But we weren't putting any precedence on, you know, dry aging or anything like that. It wasn't a conversation of that. It was a small business decision that we had this cool room that provided opportunity that lasted beyond four days.
0: Can you actually talk about that a little bit? It feels like I mean this book, um, it it really feels like necessity is the mother of invention. And like that sort of like can you talk about that like holy shit moment when you were looking at the food waste that was happening in your restaurant.
1: And, yeah, I mean that's yeah. a good kind of segue from what we were just talking about. Like when I was at Fish Face, um, I would be downstairs because it was like an, a basement kitchen um, under the restaurant. The restaurant used to be a brothel, um, so <laughs> it had this wonderful like spiral staircase that went down the middle of it. Um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, (laughs) so we were down, yeah, downstairs prepping under fluoro lights, and so you go a bit crazy when you're working like that, singular, by yourself, (laughs) and you're just wall to wall with fish, and so all you do is think about fish, and you're totally immersed in it, and that was wonderful, because I did it, you know, for the first time that I worked at Fish Face, because I ended up working there twice, you know, the first time was, you know, just short of 18 months, but it was very, like, singular work you know like I, I came so early to get all the work done and then my team would kind of come in the afternoon and um, you know uh, scaling and gutting fish is tedious and it's like you know Instagram portrays a certain level of you know excitement and wonder um, but ultimately scales need to come off the fish <laughs> and you know the organs need to be taken from the cavity whether you know you choose to use them or not they they come out um, and you know, whether we use toothbrushes to clean the spine um, to get the blood out, then so be it. But, so like, but you know, at Fish Base, you know, where everybody's probably heard of flathead, I suppose, it's like fairly, you know, iconic Australian fish that everybody loves um, over there. And it's the, the fish most synonymous with fish and chips. Um, and we would sell heaps of fish and chips. Um, and this flathead would come in whole which was unlike any restaurant in Sydney at the time, which was, if they had fish and chips on the menu, it's like the fillets are just coming in, skinless, boneless, you know, ready to go. And so I would process down all of these whole flatheads that would come in with all this mucus all over it, and they were like full of slime, and I thought this was bad. Like, I'm like, what's the mucus? Like, this is gross. Like, Mm. it's like, you know, it's so stringy and, you know, it's full on. Um, but then later got told, you know, that's, that's basically the slime that protects the fish in the ocean. And it's, you know, what stops pathogens and, you know, things attacking it in the ocean. Abrasions and, you know, that's its little insulation. So to have that come in and they're sliding around on the bench, because they're all in rigor mortis, they all look like bananas sliding around on the bench. And then you go and you scale it using the traditional bear trap on a stick. Um, that we all kind of know and, you know, have used. Um, but yeah, we'd be ripping the scales off really aggressively because, you know, you've got to get the job done and it's got to be done efficiently and you've got to get it back to temperature and all that. And then, you know, take, take the guts out very, you know, with, <laughs> you know, intensity to get the job done again. And so one way that you found out through being educated by Stephen and other chefs that I've worked with Is that V card behind the head where you just like do the V? You take collars in the head, you snap, and then you pull, and then organs come out. It's very clean, extremely clean, really fast. And then you can pretty much lay the flathead on its side, put the knife at the head, at the head end, and then just whip down to the tail, one off, and then flip it to the other side and repeat. And so this was like, you know, you just turn up and you just do that. Like, there's so much flathead. Like, you like. Processing boxes, and this is on top of doing like all these other fish as well, like snappers and kingfish and salmon's and all sorts of stuff. So, it becomes a task very quickly. Like you remove yourself from the fact that you're handling fish, and you start only seeing it as a task or a job that needs to be fulfilled. And that was when I started questioning it because it made me uncomfortable that you, you know, you're so removed from. What it is you're doing—it's you, just uh, something on a list that needs to be crossed off—and I feel the same way about like my staff. The way that you know I talk to them about people coming to the restaurant. It's a little bit of a side tour um, that I'm just going to say, but like I hate it when people converse customers about like and call them packs or covers, and you know they remove that kind of human element where people coming to my restaurant, but our restaurant as a collective and they've made a great amount of effort to come there, whether it's an auntie that's just got off a plane to come and meet with, you know, relatives that she hasn't seen in a long time, whether it's mum and dad coming up for the first time after having a baby and it's like their first meal. Or, you know, brothers and sisters that haven't seen each other in like two years or something and they're meeting up. And it's you have no idea why people choose to be in a room together or how they got there, whether somebody's saved up for six months to come to your place and all that sort of stuff. So There needs to be, you know, a real (laughs) attention to that sometimes, and I think that gets missed. So, with regards to the fish, I started questioning why we were taking a fish that weighed a certain amount and were only yielding a certain amount, and I just found that fascinating. And so then, you know, I was probably 20, and I was just weighing the things that were getting cut out of these fish. And so, majority of the time with flathead, especially when they were in season, they had a really big roe, like the eggs and the sack that was inside, it was really significant. And I was like, my God, this is, um, you know, this is heavy. It's like 150 grams worth of gear coming out of, you know, the fish. So you know, you look at like as a monetary thing, like 10% of a fish's weight in the form of, you know, the eggs and liver and stomach and things. And you know, you're looking at a fish that's around eighteen dollars a kilo, like Australian. So comes at a cost it's like two dollars worth of organ that's going in the bin and two dollars you can't look at as just being the raw value but then the restaurant value of that becomes eight and so it's just fascinating that we just keep doing the same things because it was just habitual routine and a task and so then after that I worked in a number of other restaurants I got to work in uh, the UK I, I worked at the fat duck briefly uh, for three months for a development stage, which was amazing to work with Heston kind of every Thursday I'd have like my moment with Heston, which was super cool when he was still kind of in bray and very much like Immersed in what they were doing um, And you know, I, I got told when I got there you'd be focusing on the Heston at home cookbook And I'm like are you fucking serious? Like I'm gonna do a domestic cookbook <laughs> like, <laughs> It's like I got there. And I'm like ready to make Bacon and egg ice cream and snail porridge and you know do all this crazy stuff and then they're like okay you're gonna do a you know cookbook for the home cook and I'm like oh my god um, but it ended up being the best thing that could have happened like it was the most inspiring kind of work that i I'd, I'd done and it was incredible um, and to you know have Heston coming in every Thursday and setting tasks for them the next Thursday when he would come and then take the data and look at it and. Work it out and see if I was on the right track, and then steer course for the following week. And so, three months of that was incredible um, to have that kind of interaction. And you know, I focused on eggs for a month. I focused on chicken for a month. Uh, I focused on lemon tart for the whole course of three months. Hence why I've got a lemon tart that will never come off the menu <laughs> because it's just scarred into my brain. <laughs> um, yeah, like working out like why a lemon tart cracks, things like that. Like, he would come in and just kind of be like, okay, lemon tart's great, but why does it keep cracking? And you need to work that out. And it's like, oh my god. And so, that yeah, that's very tedious. Like, you kind of question all the obvious stupid things that you're like, oh, maybe temperature, maybe, you know, the wind, like, I don't know. Like, you just question all the, like, the very obvious things. And then it morphs weeks later into, okay, let's get a pH gun for the lemon. <laughs> and it's like, my God, I'm like stabbing lemons with a pH gun, working out whether winter lemons do different things to summer lemons. And it was um, incredible.
0: What do you think, I mean, like, this is maybe a little bit of a deep, intense question, but like, you know, why hasn't anyone written this book, book, book before? Like, why is, it, why is it you? Because yeah. it, it feels very you, but it also feels very logical, very yeah. rational, like, sustainable. And, like, why hasn't anyone questioned these things? Well, I mean, what a- is what is the thing where you start to pull out a ph gun? Like, what is it about your work ethic and where did that come from, do you think?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you, you surround yourself with good people, and they challenge you to question a lot of things. And, you know, Hester in particular, not to give him, like, total credit, because I didn't get to work for, with him for a huge amount of time, but that mantra that when you go into the fat dark, it's like you have to question every single thing. You have to wonder why and the how and, and how do we get to the state of roasting a chicken f- at 180 degrees for 35 minutes and it's always dry but it's kind of, it's roast chicken. Um, and then Hessen decided to roast it at 90 degrees for a really long time and then brown it at the end and that was, you know, blew my mind and I kind of came up with the idea to put skim milk powder on the chicken and, you know, that would create this sugar shell around the outside, all the lactic sugars, and so we would get a brown, like a more brown result at the end, doing less damage to the actual flesh. So a lot of those conversations impacted me, uh, having had a basin of information fed to me from a young age with regards to fish, and then you have other experiences where you learn about meat and proteins and vegetables and pastry and, you know, everything, you know, cooking is so hard. <laughs> like. If you really get into it, it's super challenging. Like, I mean, for a chef now in this era that we live in, it's like, you know, you need a PhD in like, you know, cookery and science and social working and, you know, business and all sorts of things. And poetry. And poetry. Because you have a
0: lot of form and content going on in this book, Yeah. the the, the form of being butchery and the content being fish. Yeah. And there's so many beautiful things like mortadella and yeah. like you know,
1: um, you know the pastrami. Yeah. You know, you know, there's all sorts and, yeah. of crazy shit. Um, <laughs> I no no. But to answer your question, like I feel like I've I've put myself into a position where people have put you know ten dots in front of my face and I've just put a sharpie through it and I've just kind of gone yeah that'll work. Yeah. And I mean it sounds more simple like it it it. You know, you are correct in saying it's like, why hasn't this kind of been thrown up into the mix? And I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, if any, like, I know most of you don't know Stephen Hodges, but he was like very, you know, unique character, like he'd drink a lot, like take feathered drugs and like, he was an intense character. But like, at his, you know, in his most incoherent, he would say the most unique things. And a lot of it I would filter out. And there was one conversation in particular which stuck with me, which, you know, I said to him one day, I'm finding it a bit hard to um, write these menus every single day with all these different fish coming through all the time. And I'm trying to do, I'm trying to express myself and I'm trying to hold up this kind of, you know, your work and your whole career. And, you know, I was just trying to do good things. And, you know, he was wildly incoherent and said to me, you know, just think of it like a piece of meat, you know, like tuna's kind of like, you know, a cow. Like, why don't you just do it like, you know, think of something that would go with beef and then that might work with tuna. And he rattled off a few different things and then that stuck with me and I kind of just bedded it down. And then later when I got the opportunity to open St. Peter, then we started um, exploring that more, you know, intensely. So one in particular is swordfish. Whenever I look at swordfish, I see a pig. It's like, you know, it's this dense, fatty, white protein that, you know, is pink at times. And, you know... Has a huge belly on it most times when we get the fish in, so why can't we make bacon, um, and why can't we make Um Why can't we do all these really cool things? Like, and I mean, it's only because we ever look at fish as being two fillets, um, and you know, to suggest that I'm the first person to do something with the whole fish is incorrect, obviously, because you know, Asian cultures, Middle Eastern, African, like. There's a whole world of cultures out there celebrating the whole fish and consuming all of it, born more out of necessity um, and, and the logic of, well, if I buy something, then why would I throw half of it in the bin? But then how does that translate into a Western palate? Like, how does that translate to the average American or the average, you know, Brit or Australian? Like you know, super confrontational to just on a menu just go, yeah, I'm just going to do fish sperm and, like, eyeballs and, you know, enjoy. And, you know, this heightened, you know, extreme level of uh, texture confrontation that you experience if you do travel and, you know, you eat an eyeball from a fish, it's, like, super gross. Like, as a, you know, Westerner, like, I mean, I, I would not be wanting to consume a fish eyeball because that's just not in my genetic makeup uh, I don't find that delicious so how do I do that well let's kind of make a prawn cracker out of the eyeball just because you know it will work because it's protein we can blend it we can make a puree and so the reason for even thinking like that is just because I know how to make a prawn cracker and I mean that's the thing about this book I hope it inspires lots of people and I know that it it is Uh, and there's some wonderful people in this room and then wonderful people who I've just met and continue to send me messages on Instagram that are really inspired, and they start making charcuterie and they start um, cutting fish like meat and all this stuff and I think that's amazing that I can have had some kind of impact on cooking um, but I don't want the message to be um, misdirected because I'm seeing chops getting cut from John Dory in particular, and I'm not seeing where the rest of the fish is <laughs> and I'm in a very fortunate position of having a restaurant that has its own fish shop, so I can kind of create the cuts that I want for the, for the restaurant menu to fuel the desire and the captive audience that wants to consume the organs and the, the chops and the, you know, the intrigue, but you know, I do have an outlet for the secondaries. Like I, do, I can make fish cakes, I can make fish lasagna, I can make terrine, I can do all those things, so nothing is going in the bin except for the gills and the gallbladder.
0: I'm so interested in your fish butchery like yeah. shop that you have um, and how you translate and if you translate this message to your customers mm. and if you sell things like eyeballs in a little court container or and then a little recipe of how to use them or like how, how far do you take it in your retail Yeah, shop? I mean,
1: <clears throat> so with fish butchery, the idea was that the restaurant got kind of really busy um, quite quickly and 18 months in, you know, this sushi train that it used to be, had, we'd just run out of space. Like, I was just like, we we need more space because we've got all these chefs in such a small space. We're hanging fish off everything we can find in the cool room. And there's such, like I said before, a captive audience that really wants there to be something dry aged on the menu. They want an an organ <laughs> of sorts on the menu. And obviously one fish has one liver, has two eyeballs, has one heart, has one spleen has one stomach there's only so much you can generate from one fish Um, it's extraordinary what you can but then when you start looking at it in a restaurant sort of setup how do we get this on the menu more consistently so you know for every chef it's kind of like all right we've got a busy restaurant with a bit of a line out the door let's open another restaurant and let's kind of get stuck into this and then in my brain it was kind of like people would be like "Is Josh cooking my fish tonight like, well no is it the other one and I hate that idea of you know Yes, I'm sitting in Brooklyn talking to you all and there's, you know, I've been away for like three (laughs) weeks and, you know, there's people in the restaurant kind of going, where's Josh? Um, But uh, that's empowering people and that's a good thing for them. But I feel like uh, we needed more space. And so I took a space five doors up the road uh, from St. Peter and it was a hair salon um, and it had like all these divisional walls in there. But the wonderful thing was 20 years before it was a cafe, And then when it turned into a hair salon, they didn't, they just kind of boarded up that kitchen area. So like the exhaust was there, the grease trap was there. You know, um, they had all the plumbing from where the the chairs were from the salon. So like all the boxes were ticked. So it was like a wonderful, it's like taking the sushi train. I literally unplugged their fridges, cleaned it and then plugged them back in. And then like demolished some walls and took some stuff down off, off the beautiful sandstone and brick that we've got in there now. And so we're quite fortunate to kind of just just go without having to outlay so much capital and that's really, you know, you want to avoid that obviously in a major city like Sydney and New York and, you know, because the fear of shutting something is just overwhelming, uh, especially when it's just my wife and I who own both businesses. Um, You know, we've got three kids so everything kind of is really important and matters Um, and Anyway, we took this space, and it was super cool, and the idea was is that it was a production room, like it was gonna be a big prep space for us to, to generate enough work uh, volume of prep to go across to the restaurant to make that more efficient. Um, we had gone from being three staff at St. Peter, myself and two other chefs, to doubling the staff to seven, when I, um, uh, early on, before we even thought of fish butchery. Um, and then at that time of doubling the staff, Our restaurant kind of slowed down a little bit because of the shininess of being a brand-new restaurant had worn off and you know kind of got cold a little bit and there's something in Australia called Vivid it's like a big light festival that happens and sucks everybody into the city Um, and then my wage cost went to like 48% (laughs) which in any profession sucks Um, and then my food cost that was sitting at like 32 went down to like 26 25 and that was mind-blowing that you know there was this swing of labor going extremely high but then food dropping and that was that was the moment that we were like questioning why we were putting so much in the bin and then we started like glazing fish ribs to make them look like pork spare ribs and putting barbecue sauce and smoking them and doing all sorts of stuff with that and then all the little fins and things we started leaving on the bone and then cutting chops that had a handle and like doing all this stuff and it was born more out of logic and understanding the anatomy of a fish (coughs) and kind of thinking, well, I can make this look like a lamb rack, like I can <laughs> like I can l- make it look like that, and then, okay, if it looks like a lamb rack, then what would you put with a lamb rack, and then, you know. Yeah. So, it's, it's fairly creative and broad, but it's, yeah. um, it is logical. But um, the butchery ended up being, you know, a retail, and is a retail space, dine-in, takeaway. The cool thing about the dine-in takeaway menu is I can explore ideas that I can't put on the restaurant menu. So, like the restaurant has turned itself into this little, um, you know, slightly more finessed product that is more of a restaurant uh, per se, Um, and then you've got the butchery which can remain kind of this low-key fish shop that's kind of just fun, and we do yellowfin tuna cheeseburgers, we do fish (laughs) sperm, mortadella and kingfish liver pate barmé sandwiches, and we do, you know, like fried school prawns and like all yummy potato scallops and onion rings that, you know, and all that stuff and the fish and chips, obviously. Um, so that satisfies one half of my brain that can't express that at the restaurant and I can go more into that. And we're a wholesale business now as well. So we drive our fish around town and we supply restaurants. Um, which is really cool because we can age fish for people um, and chefs that don't have the infrastructure but have the uh, enthusiasm to want to use it Um, and as well like the whole idea was to merge the butchery world into the fish world Um, you know uh, when you go into a meat butchery it's kind of there's a lot more enthusiasm to sell you something and check out this cut or here's a recipe that will help or you know, there's there's a little bit more communication, I feel, in a meat butchery because there's a little bit more significance placed on the value of the product that you're purchasing, and also a level of confidence that you walk into a meat butchery with thinking, okay, it's a steak, yeah, I'll, yeah, I know what I'm doing, kind of thing. As opposed to fish, it's kind of like everybody freaks out. <laughs> and the confrontation even that a fillet brings, let alone, you know, um, the, all the organs that I'm talking about and, and the other bits and pieces. So. The idea with the shop was to make it really clean, very, very dry. Like, the idea was to make the room feel dry. Um, there is no scent of fish when you walk in there. Like, I, I can't have the, fish, the shop smelling like fish um, because that would be horrible. Um, I needed a charcuterie cabinet in the front window to display enthusiastically what these fish could potentially become. So we've got like a big Opa that you might know, or Moonfish. Um, prosciuttos hanging in the front window we've got like, you know, at Christmas time we put Christmas hams up, where it's like <laughs> a fish tail that's got all the cloves studded in it <laughs> and, um, you know swordfish bacon and links of sausages, links of tuna and duya, like there's all this stuff in there and it's like, people walk past and they're just like, have no bearings on what they're looking at, like and, you know, they look up and there's no fish butchery on the outside it's just like the, the big blue Fish, the cartoony-looking fish that we've kind of got as our mascot there. But, um, you know, people want to come in and it's really cool. But we've got this big, like, we've got a seven-meter marble table in the middle of the room, which is super cool, because it kind of brings this glamorous setting to the guys that are working around the table. And, you know, you can have, like, 200 kilos worth of fish out on the counter, and all these this team of people working around the bench, and they're all processing down this fish, and it brings visibility to this product. and you know for a chef you normalize what great fish looks like very quickly you kind of like oh yeah cool it's like super beautiful and blue and green and yellow and you know a Dorado that I was handling yesterday beautiful yellow and you know all these colors in it and it's like for the average Joe like they have no idea (laughs) what that is or how it looks it's like skinless boneless white flesh fillet that's under plastic at the supermarket and it's you know it's there Um, so for people to come in and go my god like that's Huge or wow! You actually take the fillets off anchovies by hand. That's crazy, yeah. and so that's that's really great. And all the people that I've hired at fish butchery are chefs, so they can socially communicate to the people coming in um, a method of cookery, a species of choice that they you know that we're we're passionate about, and that has just come in. We can tell them who the fisherman was, where it's from. Uh, yeah, time and method of cookery. What what to set your oven at? You know, do you have a fry pan? Okay. Do you have a fry pan that doesn't have a plastic handle? Okay. No, you don't. Well, cook it on the stove. Like, there's all these conversations um, that we kind of that we kind of have, just so that we can build context into how they're going to have a great experience with the fish. Um, because we're not only selling them a piece of fish, we've got to sell them some self-confidence and belief that they can produce something that is of value to the money that they're spending. Um, And yeah, just bring reality to the fact that, you know, fish come in whole and then you, you, you process it and then you do it. So long story short, we do offer liver, we do offer rope, we do offer, you know, bits and pieces like that, a lot of charcuterie. Uh, lots of oysters, um, a whole lot of condiments and pickles and bread from a local bakery and all that stuff, but uh, the bags of eyeballs aren't really a thing. (laughs) Um, You know, sheets of eye chips that we can give you and you can fry them at home, definitely. But um, I don't give, like, I only give people those organs and things when they're extremely, extremely good, uh, really great quality and dry and, and kind of packaged in a way that they can just tip it out of whatever we give them into a pan or onto, into an oven or whatever so they can have a really good time with it because otherwise it's super confrontational and good luck
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's definitely I mean like I felt like the, I, I don't know how you felt like when you opened the restaurant, I don't know if you always wanted a restaurant, always wanted to be a chef and then like what it was like for you when you were like I guess I'm doing this thing now and like sort of like oh and actually maybe that's a way to like really touch people around the oh, yeah. world and like completely change, yeah. Uh,
1: the, um, yeah, fish yeah. Like, I mean, when I was eight years old, I got diagnosed with a tumor on my kidney, uh, and yeah, so I had my right kidney taken out, and yeah, had two years of chemotherapy. I had radiotherapy, lots of stuff, and. Uh, in '97, I got a Starlight Foundation wish where I'd wish to go and meet the Chicago Bulls. So that was cool. Got to meet Jordan and like Dennis Rodman and Scotty Pippen. So that was super cool. Um, Wait. I was Dennis Rodman like. Okay. He had pink hair. See. Yeah, <laughs> he had pink hair and a bull ring in his nose. It was insane. Um, but yeah, he's pretty. He's a pretty icy kind of dude. He's, <laughs> yeah. No, it was very cool. Um, And we had a wonderful Christmas there and that was really amazing. But the reason I say that story is because down the line further, then there were so many like Cancer Foundation lunches and dinners and food orientated events and things that I found myself cooking at, um, as a young apprentice in in the town that I was in, um, cooking with the restaurant that I was working for. But then like chefs would come to the town to, to do an event as well, and then I'd get to meet them, and then I'd go to their restaurants, and then it would kind of, you know, I'd turn up at their restaurants, having met them briefly at this event, and then just have a solo meal at this really fancy restaurant in Sydney, as like a 16 year old, and go like, hey, met you the other, you know, the other time, and they're like, yeah, I remember you, like, why are you here? (laughs) And, um, you know, so, you know, blowing like whole paychecks on like really excessive, like crazy meals, but the good thing was I wasn't drinking obviously, so um, you could spend a lot of money on food. Um, <laughs> and you know, when I, yeah, I I finished year 10 as a f- 15 year old, I was about turned 16, then I took my, my apprenticeship, the, the job, and you know, the reason for wanting to become a chef was because I loved cooking for people and I loved seeing their reaction and I think it's probably one of the most kindest gestures you can do for another human being is cook them a meal uh, regardless of what the ingredients are that you're going to give them or your your level of skill i think it's just a wonderful gesture and uh, as my
0: therapist has told me they're actually ingesting a part yeah. of you so yeah. like you just made a thing and then now they're eating it and yeah. it's like your own passive or Aggressive way of yeah sharing.
1: Yeah completely like I think it's a wonderful (laughs) thing and that started with my family giving them You know a meal as kind of this kind of you know It's just an expression and you know in my bedroom I had like posters of chefs and Mm -hmm. food (laughs) and and (laughs) like things that were abstract to all my other friends, but um I You know, I just really loved it. I thought it was super cool and that this was kind of pre you know like, I suppose it was Marco's thing was going on and all that stuff, but it was kind of at a time where there wasn't heaps on TV, like Curtis Stone was doing, like, surfing the menu mm-hmm. um, with with another guy, which was super cool. Um, and anyway, so then we, um, we uh, yeah, I ended up taking this job and then I worked my way through my local area and then went to the city and then I went over to the UK and then we ended up opening St. Peter. But I've been with my wife now 10 years and I met her when I was 20 uh, and she was 18 and she was a first year apprentice and I was a fourth year apprentice and they put us in the same room together and um, we weren't against each other but she ended up winning the first year thing, I won the fourth year thing and uh, I asked her out for a meal and then yeah, ten years later, this is like the longest time I've been away from them so that's, yeah, crazy, but uh, Julie and I both she's a pastry chef, her and I both created this little kind of thing early on. We called it First and Fourth because of that. Um, And we did pop-ups and stuff around Sydney so that we could kind of express ourselves and, you know, she would do some desserts, I'd do some food. And it was just a wonderful way to interact with the food media at the time um, and other chefs and people that we thought were important to us. And then it turned out later, like, even with that story that I was saying before about meeting all these chefs at a really young age, you know, Later when you're like cooking, you're you're representing a restaurant, you're the head chef, you're the sous chef, whatever. These chefs are kind of following your progress. And there's like this sense of ownership and pride from these significant chefs um, watching you kind of grow up. And that's been a wonderful thing to have started cooking when I was like 15 or 16 and 15 years later, my like guys that were on posters in my bedroom are like now buying my book and wanting me to sign it. And like, that's extremely like, moving um, and like I'm super flattered and honoured to kind of have the opportunity to to put words on paper because I feel if you have that opportunity ever in life, it's it's a huge responsibility and and just um, one that I, yeah, I, I had a wonderful time writing it. It took eight weeks to write the book and that seems really short but... It was, um, seven years. and it is short, but yeah, like, Good. I mean, for, fi- for 15 happened? years, I suppose, you got to look at it in terms yeah. of all the things that you accumulate and thoughts and all that, but yeah, and I had... And also
0: like <coughs> you're so precise, a lot of people don't even write their recipes down. Yeah, like, It I, sounds yeah. like you were
1: writing a well, milligram down. Yeah, I wish I was. <laughs> I would have made it easier, but, um, you know, because, I mean, everything that went into the book was something that I thought of inside the space of two years, because right. the restaurant's now three, um... And so, yeah, like uh it was crazy how it all happened, but uh, you know, like one year ago, I started looking at publishers and wanting to work with somebody, and there was a lot of cool offers and things, but nothing really stood out as being forward thinking uh it was all fairly standard, um and Hardy Grant kind of put their hand up and said, "Well, let's do it and and they seemed really receptive to the idea of this kind of level of uh conversation and The lady who was the publisher, Jane Wilson, she said to me, "Uh, when do you want a book out? And I said, September. And then she's like, okay, cool, that's a really great time, because Christmas and la la la. And I heard her talking to her partner like uh, an hour later and she said, okay, yeah, September 2020, this will be good because it ties in with X, Y, Z. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like it's gotta be 2019. And then she's like, okay, how much have you written? And I said, I haven't started yet. (laughs) And then she's like, okay. well, if uh, you want the uh, deadline, like I mean your deadline for the whole thing to be handed over, like in terms of the writing, uh, needs to be with us January 14th. And this was November five, And um, my third child, my daughter, was born on December 17th. And uh, the restaurant was shut every year because my wife, when we signed the lease, my wife blocked out two weeks over Christmas for five years of the lease just so that I actually stopped at one point. Um, so, we, yeah, Christmas Day, uh, we did all the Christmas things and all the little holiday days. Um, and then I said to my wife, I need from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. for the next two weeks, just if you to leave me alone. <laughs> now I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna go into the restaurant uh, and, and write this book. And so I sat in the middle of St. Peter on my phone most days and then other days on my iPad. And I got this book written um, and my wife was dealing with three children. Uh, all sub-five, and so, you know, very fortunate to have somebody as powerful as, as Julie, um, and yeah, it was just, and then we had 11 days to shoot the book, so there were seven days of, seven days to produce 60 recipes, and if anybody knows wow. fish, like That's all of you amazing. do, um, fish is one of those things that you should be writing a book over the course of 12 months, so that seasonally speaking, you can get all of those things in, but we had seven days. so. Um, we managed to, it was incredible how some species came in as one fish in one box. And I was like, my God, like I, I had to call upon like eight or nine people <laughs> to be all on the hunt for this list. And they would just send it if they found it. And yeah, like I said, like one fish would arrive in one box and I'm like, it's perfect, like it's amazing. And I feel like I, got, I had a lot of luck. Like, I mean, the John Dory that's on the inside cover of the book, that was one fish, and I waited, like, we had to shoot that a day before the book got handed over, like, to actually go to the publishers. So, you know. And yeah. also,
0: you had to butcher it perfectly. You only have one yeah, shot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point,
1: because, like, I, I, was so really worried, like point. <laughs> I was so worried, like, I was so worried. Like, I got this. And especially when you're shooting with like a macro lens and like this so detailed like I'm like if I stuff this up I'm gonna look like an idiot like and um, I think the other thing as well was I said to my Photographer and the team and stuff. I don't want the book to feel like you've already seen it Like I don't want it to feel like this Instagram rehash of like I've seen that like kind of thing and I didn't want to feel tired And I think the way that the photographer came at it. He was quite nervous Um, at the thought of doing it because there was some good shots that I'd taken on my phone and stuff on Instagram. And he goes, how are we going to recreate all this? And I'm like, I don't want to. Like I said, you kind of, you do your thing. Um, And he came at it from a really fantastic approach. But my briefing for the book to to everybody was make sure it's dry, make sure it doesn't have a smell, and I'm not going to be anywhere near water, just in general. And um, they nailed that. And I, I, like, even seven days of 60 recipes then we had four days to do all the butchery kind of all those images of like hanging fish and like scaling and the the step-by-step basics on filleting and butterflying and stuff so (coughs) it was very cool how how it all came together
0: well i feel like i have eight million more questions but i want everyone in here to be able to (laughs) ask questions in the room um you know I, I don't need to ask my ACDC or Nick Cave in the bed seats question. I think you can skip that. Um, but I want to have one hand there. up already. Oh, wow, okay, cool, yes, uh, <laughs> in the back. Um, thank you for coming.
2: Thank
1: you. For, thank you. everything you've done, um, I'm to stand up for this.
2: When you, were, when you were 18 or 19 at the Fish Base, Yep. and um, I found it interesting because you said um, previously, <laughs> and, I, and I apologize if I misunderstood, yep. fish and chips would just come as Frozen mass-produced fillets or whatever, and then you were in a position where you were processing the entire um, flat Yeah, whose decision was that to change that to the entire fish? And um, I guess my the, the, the deeper question is yeah. is when you had that epiphany that was at I guess the, the the helm of whoever decided that we needed to to you know process the entire fishes. Correct. Um, so, that epiphany when you were like, wow, things have changed, mm. for whatever reason, what would you hope or expect from an 18-year-old chef at St. Peter's today? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Strong question. Um, so, no, so working working at Fish Face, I was working under this guy, Steve, who I said, and he d- he was like, anything that came out of his mouth was law, and so if he said, don't wash the fish, then that was like, you, it's kind of blasphemy to ever consider even doing that. and you know, again, none of you have really met him or interacted with him, but he's like a bulldog. Like, he used to be a boxer. Like, he's an intense dude. Like, I've watched him hit a customer out in front of the restaurant because, (laughs) you know, for some reason, but, um, you know, I watched him, like, he'd be on the pass and he'd be plating food and sending it out, and he was the guy that kind of pioneered this thought, especially with his other business partner, Greg Doyle, who had Pier Restaurant, which is probably slightly more well-known, um, they got into the 50 best, I, sp- I suppose, at one time. Um, and he, so Greg and Stephen had Pia, and they were really at that time telling everybody that they needed to eat their fish medium rare, which was, you know, just game-changing. Like, and, But they didn't have Instagram to say that, so, which I feel is important to converse about because I have this wonderful <coughs> opportunity to tell the world immediately when I'm making a pastrami of marlin and making a ribbon sandwich out of that like, and then it's like, whoa, that's wild. But, you know, it's a lot of dot joining, like I said. Um, but, you know, two stories, one at Pier, which will give you a sense of his aggression, uh, was uh, he sent out this fish, went to a table, gentleman got told to eat the fish from the thinner side of the fish and make his way across to the thick, obviously because the fish will continue to cook. And that's something that we tell all our customers at the restaurant before eating. Um, and, you know, this guy's just cut into the thick end, just cut in half, and it was raw, like significantly raw, and he brought, grabbed the waiter and said, this is raw, like I can't eat it, like cook it again, that kind of thing, then Steve <laughs> got sent back into the kitchen, and then Stephen's got this plate, obviously, and he's very upset, and he runs at the door to the kitchen, fly kicks it, like, <laughs> kicks the door, the door comes off its hinges, oh my and then slides out into the restaurant. And then he, like, turns to the whole restaurant.
2: Who the fuck just said... You know,
1: and just lost it. And then he goes... And this guy just kind of put his hand up. He goes, get the fuck out. and then, like, table of four, all out, get out. And so this... Stephen, you know, that's that's really bad, obviously. Um, but he did the, the laborious, the hard... Work in terms of that level of education that he was trying to, you know, passionately um, you know, express. And then at Fish Face, when I personally had the, you know, not pleasure of seeing, but uh, seeing him in full flight because I wasn't in that peer kitchen, um, you know, he would do the same thing. He'd send the fish out, be really underdone. Somebody would do the wrong thing, like would always happen because most of the time people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah just leave me alone. I'm just going to yeah. have my dinner. I don't yeah. care. And they did the same thing. And they sent it back and they put it up on the pass. Stephen smashed the plate and then he grabbed the heat lamp, which was swinging in front of him. And then he's like, who the fuck just sent the fish back? And he was using it as a torch. And then he had it on this woman and he's like, get the fuck out. And out she went. And it was like, yeah, it was insane. Like, it was insane. It was like martial law. It was just, um, you know... And to to just, you know, he, like, honestly, he did the hard work in terms of um, doing that, and so I don't have to do that, obviously, I never would anyway, but um, to people come into the restaurant and we suggest doing it a certain way, and, you know, we encourage them to, to try to be broad-minded about how they eat it. But obviously, if they want to cook through, that's their prerogative. So I'm a little bit more fluid in, in, in how people should consume fish. Um, but then what somebody should come and... As uh, as a young chef coming to Saint Peter, um, I think as well it's slightly different having the butchery and Saint Peter. So to refer more to Saint uh, to fish butchery, a young chef going there, they need to actually understand that there is monotony to the work. Unfortunately, like there's repetition. The only way you'll get faster is by doing it many many times. Um, you know, before doing all these things, aging and offal and all that sort of stuff, there has to be an understanding of you know. Uh, the why and the how, and why you shouldn't wash a fish, why you shouldn't wrap it in plastic wrap, why you should never put ice directly on fish. There's all of these levels of detail that we need to um, kind of put onto these young people. Because um, at a young age, I was very much a sponge, and I was like, you know, if somebody told me something. I was like, okay, that's, that's it now. Um, so yeah, the, the expectation is if you come and work for us and then leave, I hope that when you leave, and go and do other things that you'll always remember like every time you see a fish you'll kind of be like, okay this is possible and I shouldn't do it like this um so yeah but just broad minded because I feel like yeah fish the wheels only spun a certain way for so long uh it's it's done the same thing historically over and over and what I'm suggesting goes very much against that especially the washing fish thing um because you know, everybody has this one, like this fascination about gutting a fish and running it under a tap, you know, until it's clean, because we feel like it's come from water, so it's cool, like it'll go back in. But have you ever been to a meat butchery anywhere in the world where you've seen somebody break down a carcass of an animal, uh, like a sirloin coming off a cow or a lamb shoulder off, you know, a lamb, um, and watch them dip it into a pool of water in front of them, and then take the rest of the bones out, and then dip it back in. And then set it over ice. And that's not a thing. Like I've never seen that ever in my life. Um, and maybe we're missing something about beefy beef or lammy lamb, because we refer to fish as fishy fish. And the only reason why we refer to that is because you know this ammonia, basically. And the only way we get to ammonia is through really bad handling, because there's an organic compound in fish called trimethylamine, and when trimethylamine breaks down, and converts into trimethylamine oxide. And that only happens when a fish dies, basically. And so then, once that breaks down, the trimethylamine oxide, that converts into ammonia. And then once you have ammonia, you have fishy fish. And the only way to offset fishy fish is by using acidic ingredients, hence why we've got a repertoire that dates back centuries with gestures of acidity in fish recipes, being half a lemon, hollandaise, beurre blanc, tomato concasse, Mediterranean, you know, all those different acidic ingredients that we've kind of popularized. And there is nothing wrong with that. Like, I'll be the first to dip my fish and chips into tartar sauce. But <laughs> it's, um, it's one of those things where we've become so habitual in our routines. Um, you know, and like with the aging of fish, the reason why I do it is to find a sweet spot where a fish tastes better. Um, it's not to dry it out. Um, through this kind of long-term storage of fish, you develop glutamates in the fish which, you know, develop savoury characteristics. And when you do that, you can articulate the flavour of fish. And if you can articulate the flavour of a fish, then you can celebrate secondary species of fish that go beyond salmon and bass and, you know, all these standard species. Because globally, we're probably only looking at 20 species of fish when there is a plethora of fish out there. And that brings you kind of the conversation of sustainability. And that's because of just the market being saturated with the same shit everywhere and it's being handled terribly. So, to have this commodity that has a four-day shelf life that requires so much labor, um, it, it's just, yeah, it's uh, absurd. Like, it, the system is ludicrous, like, and, like, that's, that's when I, like, I, I only get worked up about that because um, washing fish shortens the shelf life. It kind of eliminates any opportunity that you have of using any of those secondary products that come out of it, like the offal and things and you know it's dangerous like and more often than not a fish gets wrapped in plastic or gets wrapped in jay cloth or anything like that and you create this atmosphere of you know bacteria growth and usually if you ever buy a fish from the market the first thing in your brain if you set out to buy a fish in the morning i guarantee you all of you are cooking it that night because there is nothing in our dna saying you know like, let's ju- I'm going to eat that on Friday and you buy it on Tuesday. It's like that's not a that's consideration true. because you don't want your fridge to sink. You don't want scales in your curtains. You don't want, you know, fat spitting up out of the fry pan to making the whole house smell like fish. And our customers don't experience that at the fish butchery when they come in and purchase our fish. Um, and they get that, that level of confidence through the shop not smelling like fish because at any given time, we might have five or six hundred kilos of fish just swinging in our cool room, uh, and to not have any odor, uh, even in the cool room, uh, that, I think that's that's kind of um, you know when I can say that I do kind of walk the walk in terms of like if I'm going to say all this, I need to kind of be able to back it up with with the methods and, and the practicalities of it. So, yeah, long answer. Sorry. Yeah, it's kind of Next easy. question. Yeah. <laughs> So how do we make that mind shift? Like I think chefs have a responsibility, and Mm -hmm. Instagram is a great tool to be sharing new menu ideas and photos of whole fish cooking and things
3: like
0: that. Um, But then it's the bottom line; like people have to be ordering at the restaurants
3: as well. So how do we? I know, and it's.
1: I think that's very yeah, and it's difficult because. It's very hard to make a really global, significant impact on something that has worked a certain way forever, Um, (coughs) because at the moment it's a it's a system that celebrates quantity over quality, Um, and you know as chef like as a chef and as other chefs I know you put priorities on certain things, and if it's your priority to be regarded as one of the best chefs in the world for the plates of food that you produce, then you make decisions. Around the ingredients that you need to be serving to to get to that level. Mm. And usually that comes in the form of the ones that are most celebrated and talked about. And usually, like, and I refer to them as brands. Like, you think about everybody wants to wear a pair of Nikes and not just an average trainer. It's like, it's a brand. It comes with, you know, this allure and desirability around it. Um, And, you know, the same can be said for, you know, caviar. The caviar that we know and celebrate and love and put such high value on is from sturgeon. When really most round fish species that are female have wonderful rose sacs inside them. And if you have the knowledge and you have the priorities um, to, to make that delicious and you make that the caviar that's specific to that fish species, then you can put this wonderful spoonful of this secondary species caviar onto an oyster and have a great experience with it. But is that a priority for you? Maybe not. It's easier to buy a tin of caviar. that's just pop the lid and go, and you know that that's going to be fancy and cool and you know e- easily Instagrammable and you know desirable. Um, <coughs> the same for bataga. Um, bataga is celebrated from the mullet. Um, there's there's lack of desire to uh, use other fish species to produce bataga um, when when really if you think about it you can have a pantry full of single origin fish species bataga. Um, which is kind of hipster to say, but it's, um, you know, it's kind of cool. Like, you know, you can have all of these batagas, dried, dried fish, roast smoked, not smoked, cured, you know, all sorts of different things, all just swinging there to then be, you know, you join the dots later with your cooking. If you've got, you know, a cod's, you know, row, and you've made a beautiful bataga from it, then you can serve that back with the cod then, um, you know, later in a dish, um, because it's an act of preservation, mm. um, you know. And then even things like fogger up, it's kind of like, we all see that as being wonderful. And, you know, most of us. Um, and then, you know, John Dory Liver is, you know, rivals any photograph. But it's kind of, what I'm trying to say is, chefs need to kind of broaden their mind in terms of putting priority on a sustainable future and working more ethically and celebrating values uh, that go beyond just putting food on a plate and taking nice photos. Uh and it might seem hypocritical, but I'm trying to take nice photos of things that inspire people to just think a little bit more broadly. Um, the more I can communicate, like in terms of these settings and the book obviously, travelling hopefully brings inspiration in the form of diversity, um and also just an eye opening uh kind of thing around fish. So thanks.
3: Um Uh, Yeah, so we spoke earlier, I'm I'm the chef of Gloria, it's a sustainable seafood restaurant in New York. Uh, This is my fish provider and this is the guy who hired me. Go to Gloria. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You have spoken so much and I I followed your Instagram, it's been hugely inspirational for me and you know, it's not just an instant thing, it's just that that, that's how we can talk from Australia to New York now. That's right. and it's been static cool room, static cool room, static cool room, static yeah. room. And one of the things that sort of defines New York cuisine is that we do what we can with tiny, shitty spaces that <laughs> <True. laughs> suck. Like, anybody yeah. who's cooked in New York knows, like, some of the best restaurants have the fucking shittiest restaurant yeah. kitchens you've ever seen. Yeah, It's just like, that's a fact. Yeah. So uh, I'm actually extremely lucky. Gloria has a beautiful kitchen, and we have a quite spacious walk-in, and we have a good amount of storage space, and we've started doing things like fermentation, and we have the room to do these things against all odds. It's taken a bit of organization, but we're doing it. Yes. But one of the things we just cannot get around is we have one walk-in, and it's got yeah. fans, and it's humid as fuck. So... Uh, my question was going to be to you Did you ever have experience trying to dry age fish in a not dry environment? And yes. did you have recommendations for it? Yeah. But you sort of answered that by saying that, you know, Stephen was already a pioneer of, of, uh, of the copper kind of. Yeah. The yeah. Copper coolant. So yeah. I basically hit a stride now where we will, uh, and this is only in the last few weeks, where yeah. we will cut the, t- the scales off the tile fish. Yes. We will break it. Crying. Thank you. <laughs> we will break it and we'll put it on a, on a sport towel or a linen like um, on a rack yep. and we'll change the towel out and after two days we'll sell and that's about as comfortable as we feel because for the guests to say, oh, the seafood's incredible, everything's day of, right? And we're like, well, no, actually, yeah. we got that towel fish in like four days ago. Yeah it gets to a point where we feel uncomfortable saying that this is 100% the best way to do this because we have a very humid environment and we have yeah. a very traditional fan blowing. Yes. The do you have room one room in the cool room? room? Or it's no. all pretty established? Uh, to box like it off this. like you described in the book? Yeah. It, uh, no. No. So, <laughs> no. like,
1: I mean, the other suggestion is to buy, Well. So, buy like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is to, um, you know, the the other things that I've seen people doing, which is kind of cool, is they buy, you know, refrigerate like an old, just like a stand-up sure. kind of glass face. You know, what could be end up being manipulated into a charcuterie cabinet. Um, you can do the same thing, and it's a, and it's it's quite a cheap job, like really, from from what I know back home, having done it, to wrap copper into the back of an old fridge and put like a plate, like a stainless steel plate in front of it, and put rails in the top of it and all the racks out of it, and then you can swing, you know, three or four fish in there, if if you know, depending on the size, you could you could do a lot. Um, you know, so that's one way about it, um, to do that. The other thing is, like, uh, the restaurant that I worked at before St. Peter, um, I can't remember how long ago, maybe four and a half, five years ago, I started playing around with dry-aging fish when there was nothing about it, like, mm, like no bearings on, on what I even was thinking. Like, I was just trying to think, if it works with meat, it should work with fish. And, you know, um, what I did was I, I did it like I, like I told you. Are you washing your fish? No, no, no we stopped doing that. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And so it's kind of, you know, if that happens and, you know, you won't develop that ammonia as as rapidly. I mean, I noticed with my fish, because I do have all of the controls in place, yeah. our fish never actually goes fishy. Yeah, what sorry f- to interrupt,
3: yeah, but I, what's been amazing is that I have been like, smell this fish. It's four days old. Yeah. It's normally the point where you throw it out. It yeah. smells like day of. Yeah. But we also know from how we cook it that it's not. And you're living on water. the bone, right? Uh, well, or you we take it off? We can and we can't. Some, some we take off the fillet. Like monkfish will itch on the bone yep. for a day or two before breaking. But sure. we don't know how much farther we can go before we break it.
2: I
1: suppose cases. that's a good point to make as well. As soon as you wash a fish or put you know, ice in the near, all that sort of stuff, then the time starts ticking. The second you take a fillet off the bone, the time starts ticking. Right. So like. At the restaurant, the butchery, we, we age our fish by leaving everything on the bone, and it's all there hanging from tail and head down, and we only cut from it when we, when we need it. So, just because I've got another question behind you, but I'll, I'll just quickly, no, no just, yeah, to that, you go. Is, do you gut the fish that, yes. in that process?
4: Yes, so, actually the wire, the so
1: before, I hung, before I hang anything, it's gutted, but I have done tests around uh, aging a fish with its organs intact to a result that is very, <laughs> not so great, but uh, <laughs> like not so great for what I feel is the palate that I'm feeding. Uh, I, I can imagine, you know, in Thai cookery and you know Indonesian cookery, there's a lot of fermentation like purposely where you want to ferment the organs within the fish to create more robust flavors. Um, but that's not something that I find overly delicious. Um, we do make garum from the insignificant organs from, and I say insignificant because, you know, it's one thing for me to be laying down like draped over a mahi-mahi and looking at this huge, you know, 15 kilo fish that, you know, has a heart in it, that's able to be pulled out and liver to pull out. But, you know, if you're filleting a mackerel or a a sardine or things like that that really don't have any significance to individual organs, we'll put a percentage of salt on it and some water and then we'll ferment it for a week and uh, we do that in the bag so that it's controlled and it's a stable shelf product and that becomes a fish sauce and the wonderful thing about that fish sauce is it's very it's defined by the fish that the organs Mm -hmm. are from and like I said about the bataga you can have a pantry full of garums and fish sauces from individual species of fish so again very hipster single origin fish (laughs) gang so But to finish that conversation regarding fish storage, I tested all these fish in a fan-based cool room. And what happens is the skin dries out rapidly. Um, you need to be very selective about what fish you're maturing in that way. I'm not saying that I put my fish into this cabinet and then a month later I pull it out and it's a wonderful product. Like, you know, there are, there's levels of maturity that you find with aging where something will tastes very delicious and you'll be like, we should stop here because it's wonderful. And then in the early days when I was testing everything, I wanted to see what it could do. You'll find that it will peak two or three times. So, you know, day four, it'll be like, wow, this is really delicious. We should stop, it's amazing. And like Tetsuya even said, like the Australian chef, you know, day three and four is like peak umami for, for fish. Um, and then, you know, I'm like, okay, well, that's wonderful. But like, let's see what happens on day 12. And then, th- like, day 12 to around 15, you start developing all these mushroom vibes, like, mm-hmm. that are really, like, savoury. And very, it's very strange, like, to kind of eat a fish that tastes like mushrooms. Um, and, like, the skin as well develops into this dry kind of texture. And when you put it in a pan, the skin puffs off the flesh because you've, what you've got is skin that's dry on top. You've got a little layer of fat that sits in between the skin and the flesh. And you've got a, a flesh which is <coughs> like it's been reduced to moisture, <coughs> basically. So you've just created pork. Like that's, that's the desire for doing roast pork. It's kind of like get the skin dry, stab it with the, you know, the whole, and rub salt into it and all that sort of stuff. And when you start thinking like that, then that gets very expansive. And then I thought, well, let's make a Peking fish. Um, <coughs> so I didn't make the book because it was kind of, it's too many variables. So it was really hard. Um, and <coughs> we ended up, dressing this fish with maltose and you know and we tipped fat over it and we got this amazing peaking fish and like taking the skin off and <laughs> you know doing little pancakes with it and stuff and it was awesome um but uh that was with a, a flame tail snapper so it was like a kind of yeah it had a lot of fat in it but the long story short the fish hanging in the room, i would be suggesting uh a spanish mackerel a tuna a swordfish a kingfish hamachi um you know salmon uh, those kind, that's the first time I've said I suggest salmon, so just, I'll take that <laughs> off the record. Um, but um, oh, I just, um, yeah, what I've noticed with aging fish in particular is when you cut into a fish and you look at the fillet profile and you see lines within the fish, all those concentric lines, every single one of those lines represents one muscle of a fish. And the closer those muscles are grouped together, the denser and more oily and like I suppose, yeah, the more robust the fish is, like the density of it is, is full of oils and fat. So what happens is we can mature that fish for far longer. Like we can take our tunas now to six weeks um, and, and find great results in bringing density to tuna where sometimes when you eat fresh tuna, which majority of you all have eaten fresh tuna, and it's, you eat it, and it's ta- you can taste the moisture in it, right? And it's kind of, it's not wet, but like, it's very hard to articulate this, and it's kind of like, you just know, and I do it at the restaurant, I serve day three tuna next to day 28. And it's kind of like, just to give people comparatives, and the density that aging brings to tuna, and the savouriness that it brings, is just like, unbelievable. Um, tuna, when it's cut fresh, is often quite sloppy, like it's a little bit kind of just, you know, softish. This is kind of like, you take a slice and it's kind of like brazola, it's crazy. Um, and But the agenda really is to keep it fresh and and give somebody, like you're saying, people going, wow, this is so fresh, and it's like day four. Whereas like I do like a tartare of tuna and it's like 25 days aged and, you know, giving all the steak tartare condiments around it and they eat it and they're like, wow, it's the freshest piece of tuna I've ever had. And I'm like, that is bearing down on a month. Um, and. But that's super cool. That's amazing. And if freshness uh, is born from deliciousness, then I'll take that compliment and not be egotistical and go, well, that was a month old. Like I'll just be like, wonderful. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And that's really amazing.
2: So. Whoa. You go, sir. I'll be the cap. Go. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, when, you, when you're talking about aging fish for that long. Yeah. Uh, as well as, you, you said that you use about 90% of Yeah. fish. How much of that is predicated on receiving fish when it's still more or less in rigor status? Correct. At yeah. What, at what point does does that percentage start to go down?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I, you know, we're we're very spoiled in Australia. Firstly, to have the diversity in species, so I get to play with a lot of different things and see them at different moments. But one thing I have become uh, better at over the years is. Uh, having taken the fish butchery now, that gives me a, a greater buying power for, for what we're taking. I've always wanted to work with certain fishermen all around the country, but I haven't had um, the buying power to do so. Because when you're a 34 seat restaurant that might do 75, 80 in a service, and have a cool room that could potentially swing 10 fish in it, there's very little <laughs> kind of um, you know desire from the fishermen to kind of send you three of their fish and air freight it to you. And, you know, get somebody to pick that fish up from the airport, and it's like, it's, you know, there's, you can't justify that, so we now, having had the butchery, uh, we can buy fish in greater volumes, Uh, we can wholesale it, we can do all those things, Um, so we're able to work with fish that can, uh, fishermen that can get us our fish inside 20 hours, and so, um, you know, they're all in rigor, um, there's very little I can do with fish that are kind of trawled or like just beaten around, have interacted a lot with ice, because ultimately I can't like completely eliminate ice from our delivery system because at times, you know, what's happening on the boat is they, they catch it, you know, it goes into the ice slurry, it, it gets bled from the gills and the brain spiked, whether or not that happens, it's another thing, but it then gets packed into a box of ice and then goes to market. and so you know, we might see that fish and go, Wow, that's incredible, we need it, and then we get it, but come to kind of processing time, the organs are kind of spoiled through just maybe the length of time that it took or, you know, the fact that they were sitting on top of the ice and or or like right at the bottom, like too many like things just compromising it. Oftentimes you see spines of fish that spike through into the stomach and it popped the gallbladder and then just exploded all over the inside. And so whenever that happens, I was saying it to a gentleman at the back um, just earlier. there is the opportunity of ninety percent, but you know I'm not suggesting that every single fish has ninety percent that you can take like um, it's the awareness of knowing that it's there um, that's so important, so when it is present and and available, then let's take it and and cook it so. I'm very particular about the fish that I age. I'm very particular about the fish that I take organs from because I don't want anybody to have a negative experience around something that I'm so passionately voicing on, on a fairly broad scale now. Because if they have a bad experience or somebody gets sick, I'm going to look like a dick. Um, <laughs> to put it blunt, like, um, and so yeah, I I can't do anything with an old fish. I had conversation with a lady in um, Israel the other day and she was saying to me about can I dry age this tuna Unfortunately it had already died and it's traveled a day and like it got held in just water on the boat and I'm like you can't do much with that I'm really sorry you can't age that um, it's really dangerous to like be aging a fish that's not come from somebody who you on on a level intimately know um, and, and and have trust that they've taken it from a body of water that's controlled uh, by a fisheries body. Um, you know we don't work with anybody recreationally speaking; it's all commercial. Um, so yeah, you do have to be extremely particular about the fish that you, you choose, and that's done by your senses and all those quality points that I kind of referenced in the book. But everybody's read Nathan Outlaws, Rick Steins, Gordon Ramsay's. Quality points are all very similar throughout, and I and I'm not suggesting new quality points. But I'm, um, yeah, take, take a fish at, at the very early stages of it, and you know that through rigor. The eyes just up off the head, nothing sunken, nothing gray, nothing like beaten, you know, scales missing off it, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah.
2: Yes. Sir.
4: Uh, can I ask your thoughts on, since you're in New York City, um, yes. your thoughts on hair Repair? Eric Repair? Yeah. I have the opportunity to work at Lebanon for a very short stand specifically with this fish pusher, Gusto, who would break down just thousands of pounds of fish. it guy's an animal. Please. Like, if, by the time I would scale one fish, you would have a out done. Mm. And fish never sat for more than 36 hours yeah. in the walkins and anything after 37 was for family meal. Yeah. Everything was... Wow. ...peak and pristine, but it was also sourced from wherever he could get the best and, and the freshest. Yes. Kind of, you know, to okay. that... You know, yeah, so, so what are your thoughts on restaurants that, that do that,
1: that yeah. held their stars for what, 15, Correct. 10, 12, 15 years now? Yeah, yeah, no, um, yeah, kudos to Eric for, you know, like I, you know, I've got him on a pedestal and he was probably part of the montage of chefs that I had on my wall as a kid. Like, I mean, the, there are chefs out there that, that go to extremely, like, eccentric lengths to get the product just to, quiver onto the chopping board to then, you know, do it themselves and and then get it to the table. Uh, I, I wrote in the book and I said, most often than not, the best experiences that people have with fish usually come in the form of being on a boat with somebody and you catch fish and then you decide to cut a bit off the fillet itself and you usually dip it into cheap soy sauce and wasabi and then you eat it on the back of the boat. The reason why you love it so much and why it's a fond fish memory for you is because there's no ammonia like bacteria and there's no there's no fishiness to it because it's just come from the water and so you're eating neutral white protein that is somewhat flavorless um and you know tasting only of the body of water that it's come from and cheap that they've drowned it in so um, <laughs> so the guys like Gary repair nathan outlaw who i just got fed by in london and you know Rick Stein's and Ramsey and even Claire Smith and you know all these extremely incredible chefs all around the world all cooking fish every day and people having wonderful fish experiences with them they're getting this product to the plate in the most efficient time possible and that is giving the customer minimal fishiness and what i'm saying is like yes there is a window where a fish will be fantastic um day one or two um, and and the efficiency of scaling and the system works to provide chefs with you know this immediate product which is null of fishiness. But what I'm saying is the window is too short and you consuming halibuts and things for your family meal, that's, I don't know about that. Like I don't know how I feel about that. I think that's a wonderful thing as education to consume beautiful fish for your dinner but then how sustainable is just thousands of pounds worth of fish coming through the door only to be taking a square out of the middle and not serving the tailpiece, not serving the shoulderpiece, not serving the head, not considering the bones outside of a white fish stock. Um,
3: yeah, I'm t- like... They the did a system... fish stock if that
4: helps.
3: Sorry, they did? No, they didn't. Oh, wonderful. Oh, Actually, if I may interject, he hired me to to run Gloria and, and he had run it for a year. Uh, the story about the founding of Gloria was that the original chef, a guy Diego, was trimming uh, black bass and taking only the perfect diamond. Of course. And the sommelier at La Bernardine was like, What are you doing with the rest of it? And he said, It's family meal. Yeah. I mean, we've got restaurants. Could you save it for me? <laughs> and they ended up founding Gloria together and it's gone through the progression of chefs together but I am um, now yeah. the representative of that but the story was that they worked with Den, and he was throwing out probably of use, as you said 60-40 of the 40 that's usable he was throwing out 80 for one perfect fillet off yeah. of every single black, black bass yeah exactly
4: but yeah I
5: mean, and, and you know that's something but, that uh that I as, as these guys fish purveyor. Yeah, uh, yeah it's yeah. something that we uh, really push back against on, sh- on chefs is, is the sizing. You know, the, the always the the requirement that it has to be between two and a half and two point six pounds because then they can get a perfect portion. Uh, right, that, that's what you. That's what, that's what you want. But the question I would have is that <laughs> for sure. Uh, these guys are a lot of my customers. You yeah, know, how much I push back on them I'm yeah. wondering how much uh, pushback do you get from either customers or wholesale people or cause we we really uh,
1: the one like I mean to answer that very quickly like the wonderful thing about what we do is like we have so many t- outlets like I mean if a, if a customer comes in and they want like beautiful coral trout that's like really expensive like $95 a kilo for the fillers like it's super expensive but like I can give them like the square out of the middle because then i know that i can make terrine from the heads from the tail trimmings we can make sausages from you know all of the bits and pieces like there are so many streams that we can put our waste into um so we can kind of close the loop a little bit but for somebody you know like the restaurants that you're talking about and and others that put priority over you know on on the stars and on the on being that restaurant um you know <laughs> It's hard. Like, I feel like somebody needs to open a restaurant next door to these places. Like, <laughs> they I'm put the very serious, out and I mean it's, it's an idea that I keep toying with mm-hmm. back home because we have restaurants that do similar things, and I'm like, like really desperate to like just take a space close by, take all of their waste, and then just do a restaurant off it and don't and and only pay for labor. And do you ever rent.
0: like walk into restaurants and just like? Go like
1: that and start no. ranting. <laughs> <laughs> no, like,
0: or, uh, or do you consult? Do you consult? Like, you know, not yet.
1: <laughs> a, um, I feel like on the back of nice this, word. I will be, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's yeah. That's that's a really hard one because yeah, yeah. I can't answer that, and and I, I only hope that people who have done the same thing for ever and ever and ever can just kind of stop and have a look, and but I don't feel like they will because you know, serving a tail portion to somebody. Uh, is seen as very, you know, cheap and insignificant and not very memorable and doesn't take a <clears throat> nice photo. Right, and I the what I always hear from chefs is that, uh, you know, when when we get reviewed,
5: if, if Pete Wells comes in once and he gets a perfect square, and the next time he gets a tailpiece, he's not going to give us a good review, and there then the restaurant's going to go under, and no one's going to want to come here, and then I am broke, and then my life is over. <laughs> okay. And it's really that. It's, it's really that's, uh Uh. How serious they get about these things, and, okay. and I what what I really try to stress is that if I'm going through uh, a difficult time of sourcing a fish that's fresh from a reputable fisherman, mm-hmm. local close by, and I bring it in, and then you're just gonna throw most of it away. it's, yeah. it's really that that's actually doing
1: it's doing more a disservice to the whole industry than anything. And okay, so here's another thought to think about. Like, I mean, these guys are working on a time frame. Basis where they're kind of saying, 36 hours, and then it's kind of done. Whereas, and and because old man's probably throwing water all over this right as he's doing it, uh, or he's yeah. keeping it pretty dry. Dry. Did he, he gut the fish? Yes. And washes it. Uh,
4: a quick rinse, just I mean, God forbid there was a single scale. So a quick rinse on the flesh, but never the cavity itself.
1: Yeah. Okay. And um, I mean, if. If we create a longer window of time that you can use a fish for, then there won't be this extreme (laughs) need to push the fish out the door as quickly. So then what I'm saying is, if if the centre cut is what is your priority to put on the menu, then start purchasing more fish so that you accumulate more centre cuts. But then as well, you have the responsibility of knowing what to do with all the secondaries. And that's kind of where the book comes in. It's like, you may need to put a terrine on the menu. You may need to cure that stuff down to then produce fish cakes with, or like you know, there's you know there's probably a lot of staff meals that you can make with fish secondaries that can be spread you know over a longer period of time than just cooking up like pounds of you know fish trimmings for one meal, like you know what I mean? Fish is being used as a commodity, like it's just being like I mean that's my That's my thing about mongers, like a monger is somebody that deals and trades in a commodity, a butcher is somebody who dresses and slaughters an animal, like in readiness to be sold. So push those two together and you've got this wonderful person who is dressing, slaughtering, selling, you know, moving you know, product and and giving confidence and awareness and yeah. Uh, Yeah, I don't feel I can continue talking about it, I'll probably end up talking about it over and over again, but that's kind of my view on it.
0: (coughs) We have time for one more question. Oh,
1: taste is a lot. What <laughs> <laughs> sure. sure. so, When um, do you like eating, it's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry.
6: Can... I laughed earlier when you said like the amount of conflict that goes into selling a filet. Mm-hmm. It's like the number of times that I've been trying to sell a filet to somebody and they don't want the belly right. um, and it's going to waste. And you try to educate people and try to get them excited. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, some people just want to do what they know. Yep. So instead of fighting with these people, you, you get a little bit more passive, and then you get really excited when somebody comes in and they want to learn. Sure. Um, so I guess this is less of a question. Maybe somebody yeah, yeah. else should Not ask a yet. question. But um, it becomes like this kind of trade and secret knowledge, which is what this book feels like. Yeah. It feels like there's a lot of amazing secrets um, and knowledge that you want. I want to spread out. Yeah. To people, um, but it's got to be really fresh and really good, like you were saying, to get them excited about it, or they yeah. don't have a negative experience. That's
1: right. But like to to talk briefly about like the fillet, like if you're selling a fillet with like a belly on it and stuff that they don't want that thin side of, then you need to not like put that down to like ignorance of the customer, not kind mm-hmm. of seeing what you see and and seeing. That there's nothing wrong with that like what's wrong with you why, why don't you have it like you shouldn't like if that continues to happen which I feel like it kind of does like if that keeps happening then you need as a chef or as the person handling the product to then go about what can I do with a fish belly right. how do I bring desirability to that like can I make a bacon from this can I make guanciale can I make lado can I make you know, what else can you do with a belly? Like, you could roll it, you could accumulate these bellies through time and press them and then cut them into fish fingers and then serve them to kids for, like, crumb fish fingers instead of the processed shit that they're eating. Like, there is so many ways. Like, I mean, this is the thing. You have to question the conversations that people are having in, in, a, in a retail environment. Like, if they don't, they're like, oh, I don't want that, it's got a bone in it and stuff like that you know I promise you that same person that goes it's got a bone in it like you turned it into like something that looked like a shank like a lamb shank they'd be like oh mad that's amazing like and like you know at the rest at the butchery we we do this shank of fish which has it looks like a little lamb shank um, and we wrap it in swordfish bacon and we put like herbs on it we truss it and we make it look like anything you would see in any meat butcher and they're all lined up there and people are like yeah I'll get that and you know and when you look at a fish shank, then you start thinking about cajun <coughs> and like comforting like shank phrases and all that sort of stuff. And seeing a bone that brings excitement as opposed to fear, um, and creativity, and you know the things that I talk about in there, I hope will help in terms of um, eliminating these kind of conversations of like people's lack of. Uh, responsiveness to cuts that you might have in the window so maybe you can have that really perfect squared off wonderful little fillet in there but put it at a price where it's like okay it is there for you now but I've had to cut most of it away from it they don't have to know that now you're making fish fingers as well and you're making money off that but um, (laughs) like it's a small business decision more than anything for what I do like I mean to to throw half of a fish in the bin, like if it 's a two hundred dollar fish, which some of my fish are, and more, you know uh, we're saying that you know a hundred dollars of that is going to get put to use, which comes at a restaurant value of four hundred dollars, and as opposed to the ninety percent that I can generate now and i 'm getting close to eight hundred dollars of return
6: That's- we are in a we are in New York, people really care about their pets, so I'm yeah, definitely go. got a pet food line. some scraps. Like, yeah. we're like, what do I do with this belly- little belly flap? I'm like, well, yeah. do you have a dog? Yeah, mm. and I feel like I
1: feel like now after my kind of journey to Blue Hill yesterday, I'm going to start my own I compost. Last my list of questions yeah. was, That's how was Blue Hill? Yeah. Are you feeling inspired? Just dripping with inspiration. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> unbelievable. Last question.
2: <laughs> I, I work at oh my god <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man it was unbelievable like I was like the whole day I was like I started my day eating donuts with Wiley I had his donuts and like he was just schooling me on donuts and like I was like he definitely was on my posters in my room like that guy is like incredible and uh he you know had so much time for us, and it was so good. And then to get in the car and drive out to Blue Hill was just like I was, yeah, like giddy with the excitement. And um, just
2: squeeze in like five second question for you, literally about do it. that is like, um, we're getting Blue Hill and seeing kind of what Dan has done with meat, yeah. and you know being able to, like source like the best grass fed, blah blah blah, like as good as it gets. Obviously, we can't do that with fish. We don't control yeah. wild cod. You, you can't control water. You can't control where they come from. So like, what the to what degree, like sourcing, and my question is about sourcing. Yes. Um, when you're sourcing fish, I guess like the best we can do now is like as fresh as it can possibly get. But like, are are you are you as you know kind of like a fish person? Are you thinking about like wow, all our fish are eating plastic because every time we wash our clothes, you know, and billions of people in the world around the world washing their clothes, our fish are going to be like be eating more and more yeah. microfibers and whatnot. To what degree does that matter to you? To what degree like uh, uh, it's one of those things where it's kind of like baby steps. Like,
1: you, and and like I was talking about priorities for chefs and things. Um, that kind of global perspective on fish, and I and I don't want to be ignorant to what's happening globally. I feel like I'm very spoiled to be in Australia, where the fisheries management is probably, you know, setting the standard globally for the way we should be managing our fisheries, um, and uh, like all of the. Uh, You know there's a thing within that law basically that says you're guilty until you can prove your own innocence and I think that's a fairly good model to exist under but um, you know we don't we don't experience fish that are polluted and and things like that in Australia and so my priority for the past two or three years has been developing this language within the book that suggests uh, all these different things and methods and approaches that you can kind of take um, But my next priority is communicating this, the fact that fish doesn't have to be as fleeting as what we we think it is, and start questioning our methods at the restaurant in terms of our footprint, um, and starting on a very small level of that. Uh, I feel like in the next 12 months, I may have the opportunity to expand upon what we're doing at St. Peter, and that will give me the freedom to start more so from the ground up in terms of you know the chemicals that we're using and, and how we can you know, eliminate that based on conversations that I've had with wonderful people over the last three weeks like Matt Stone's a great friend of mine who did Silo um, in, in Australia and then in London as well and uh, he's doing some phenomenal things at Oak Ridge in Victoria and the more of these young chefs like, my, like in, in my kind of generation of chefs we're all finding our lane at the moment, like we're all trying to find our lane that we can express ourselves um, in, Um, and as well as expression comes a huge responsibility of managing a business and keeping it open and being a father of three kids and all of those things, like it's, you know, there's only so much you can spread yourself across in one particular moment. I feel like I will get there, like I know I will. It it is a a long-term priority that I feel needs to become needs to come forward because there's so many so much bad stuff happening in the water. Um, But at the moment, it's kind of like, yeah, I I have to do what I'm doing right now, and then hopefully that will affect change, and then we can move forward to something bigger. So. mm. Well, that's a really great note to to end on. Um,
0: Thank you so much. That was you just talked for ninety minutes. That was so mm-hmm. generous. Thank you. Um, I have so many emotions. I'm going to put them in a voice memo <laughs> later and send it to you. So many thoughts. Uh, just send it to you in the middle of the night. Um, anyways, <laughs> thank you. Let's do a thing. Awesome. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. So. The books for sale if you'd like a copy. There's you know, if you haven't gotten an arancine, grab one of those. There's a bunch of saltwater
1: taffy, put those in your pockets. oh thank you yeah. so
0: much for coming. And, um, yeah, don't get too
1: Last thing I say, but, yeah. um, like I said at the very beginning about uh, people coming to my restaurant uh, and things like that, um, I appreciate that all of you have come on a Saturday. Uh, which is significant, especially for chefs here, that it should be in their restaurants, <laughs> like <laughs> me. Um, but no, like uh, it is so overwhelmingly flattering when there's a group of people sitting in one room listening for ninety minutes to me just talk about things. Um, and uh, yeah, I, it's a privilege, and thank you, Paige, for um, you know putting your hand thank up. You. Um, so no, uh, deep thanks and gratitude, and thank you. Enjoy your Saturday.
2: <laughs> thanks. thanks <very laughs>
6: Wow
0: man. 90 minutes of that went by in like 10.